Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. And so, Father, we just pray that you would unify us in heart, mind, and spirit, that we would be about the purposes of Jesus as our greatest thought, our greatest effort, that we would be about Jesus' mission. Pray today, God, that you would allow us to be able to hear from you. We thank you that we do not need to look for life in dead places, that our options are way better than that because Jesus is alive. And it's in our, 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 uh, our wisdom that we look to you because we realize we need your wisdom. We need your thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. We need your strength today because you are stronger than we are. We need your, um, your, your insight and discernment because we're trying to figure out things and we don't know everything. God, would you allow for things that are foggy to become clear as we look to your scriptures, for the things that we need courage to be able to work through. Will we do that and find that today in you? Will we learn to value what it means to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray these things in his name. Amen. While you're kind of returning to your, your seats, you can open the Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. If you didn't bring a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, uh, Pastor Geraldo is in the back and he'll be happy to bring a Bible around to you. Just kind of raise your hand and he'll be happy to put one into uh, your hands. It's a gift from us to you. Um, as uh, some of you know, um, Brittany and myself and, and, uh, and, and George, we, are just, we just returned back last night from uh, our time in North Carolina. Both my parents celebrated their 70th birthdays. Last in the last two weeks, which is just awesome. Like, it's amazing. They're also celebrating this summer their 50th wedding anniversary. Isn't that phenomenal? Absolutely phenomenal. So, you know, I mean, they were born. I think I think it's 10 days apart in the same hospital in a little small little town, Smithfield, North Carolina. And uh, they dad chased her in elementary school. Dad chased her in junior high. Dad chased her around in high school. And finally, she said yes. And uh, my dad, if anything, is persistent. Um, and so. We uh, loved celebrating. We, we, we flew up there. My brother Jordan kind of arranged everything. And we flew up to Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where my family is, with, with my parents, my brother, R, and my sister drove down from Roanoke with uh, her two daughters. And we met there at the airport, and they, we drove over. It would be about 1130 at night um, that we got to my parents' house and surprised them. It was fantastic. But we had an adventuresome trip, let's just say the least, to get up there. Um, we we were we had an adventuresome trip. We uh, got to fly to we flew out of Palm Beach International, and we're sitting on the on, on the tarmac basically for almost an hour and a half, um, waiting to be able to leave. If you remember Tuesday, it was just it was, it was like a summertime day. We had thunderstorms in the afternoon, just the typical stuff, but it just it hung around, and for good reasons they didn't want us flying in that, which I appreciate. But we're sitting there just kind of waiting and waiting. And these are George's first flights, and so we're just wondering how this is going to go. And uh, so we're like, oh, maybe we're going now. And they're like, any minute now, we'll leave. And they're like, oh, another half an hour. And so just kind of back and forth. And so we're waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, we actually landed in Atlanta. We were as our connecting flight to Wilmington. Our flight from Atlanta to Wilmington was at 8 o'clock. We got off of the plane at 8.05. <laughs> so that's, you know, it's a, that's, that's hard to make that connecting flight. Um, fortunately for us, the wonderful people at Delta 
in Atlanta had had kept the flight for us. Uh, We didn't know this at this point, though. So Brittany's, like, taking off. I have George in the stroller, and I'm running behind, you know, that kind of thing. And she's running on ahead because she's really fast. And she goes down there, goes down the terminal, down down the escalator. And and I'm going down the escalator, you know, which you're not supposed to. There's all signs everywhere, you know around the escalators. I'm not recommending this, but, you know, got the stroller, you know, going down the escalators thing. I got George in my arms, okay, so don't worry about that. But I got George going down the escalator thing, and she gets on the tram and takes off, and she gets to the the gate and says, hey, hold on, my, my husband and my son are coming. They're like, no problem, we'll wait. And so we get in the, we get, getting on the plane and leaving a little bit late, but it worked out you know, really, really well. But as we got to the gate, you know, I've been busting through, breaking all kinds of rules and laws and different kind of stuff. And, and so it's these guys, kind of rule official, kind of come up to me and kind of look at me. And I'm like, okay, this doesn't look too good. And they're like, hey, so you're not supposed to go on escalator stuff. We're just going to need to ask you a couple questions. I'm like, okay. So they kind of take me to the, one of those rooms that are behind the walls you don't know are there. It was really uncomfortable. And they're like, your flight's going to be okay. It's going to be a couple more minutes. They take me back there, and they begin frisking me. It was a little, you know, little, we got to know each other really well, really quickly. Okay, it was a little uncomfortable. And just going through this process, like, okay, they're going to ask you, where did you come from? And how come you're late? And what is this? And so you said you're married. Where is your wife? I'm like, oh, she's already on the plane. And, oh, really? Okay. And all this different kind of stuff. And so they're asking me this kind of question. I'm like, okay, is there something going on here that I just don't, I don't know about? I'm a little uncomfortable. Well, they actually took me to the ground, kind of full Nelson, so back, my arms back behind my back like this. They're pushing me on the ground and begin just pulling on my, my leg, just, just like I'm pulling on yours. Um, it, was, it was much less adventuresome than that. However, we did get struck by lightning, um, so that did happen. That really did happen. Um, but <laughs> most of that, tr- that story was true. The, the, the obvious part was not true. Do what? Yeah, they were pulling pulling on the leg. It's a joke. It was a joke. Yeah. So anyway. Um, but going going on this trip though, just maybe my parents turned seventy years old. And that is that is I mean they look great. They're we're, we're very very thankful. They're they're in good health. Um my dad's losing his mind and is a terrible driver. But other than that, like they're they they're doing great. Um but just made me think, like there we got we got you know, 365 days, 366 this year because of the leap year and all that. But we have very little time. And sometimes we can, we can get kind of lulled to sleep in, in the thought that this is going to continue on. And, and, and also the importance of what we, what we do here on our Sundays. Because we have you know, 52 of these a year. That's it. I mean, each one of these matters tremendously when we gather, because what this is supposed to do is make us better in all the other environments. It's supposed to allow us to recenter our perspective, because all week, like, our perspective gets taken different places. We find ourselves worrying about this and thinking about that, and, and you know, we are concerned about this, concerned about that, and, you know, most of them are, like, valid things to be thoughtful about and valid things to be concerned about. Um, but there's only one thing that really matters, and that is that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things, all the other stuff, the worries, the cares, the concerns that are, again, not necessarily bad things, but those things fall into appropriate place when we're seeking first you know, the kingdom of God. It's when we're not seeking first the kingdom of God and our eyes shift to these other things, then we begin to focus on those things, that things get out of order and things get... Get, you get messed up, and 
our mission gets confusing and our thoughts begin to wander and our heart moves into places that it shouldn't move to. Um, and so I was just kind of thinking, like, if I could think of one thing that I want to share with you, you know, as your pastor, if there's one thing that I want to share with you today that would matter because we don't know that, you know, we're going to have tomorrow. We don't know that we're going to have it later. And hopefully we do. And hopefully that, but like, we don't know. Like, there's one thing as I was wrestling with what to share with you guys this week, it was that we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. There's lots of things that are glittery. There's a lot of things that are alluring. There's a lot of things that make false promises. There's a lot of stuff that wants to get your attention, wants to get our attention. But as followers of Jesus, our eyes must be fixed on him. Ultimately, there's nothing that is, that is value, as valuable as Jesus. There is, there's a lot of competition. There are a lot of claims that other things make as being valuable and value, valuable efforts of your time and your energy. But there's nothing and no one that is as valuable as Jesus. Would you agree with me? You last... Last week, you know, this time last week, I shared a message, uh, sorry, um, two weeks ago, no, no, last week on Easter, but the week before that, I shared a message with you about how Jesus fed 5,000 men, and that there's always a provision for the vision of God, that God always has something stored up to accomplish his purposes, that in no way, shape, or form, at any point in time, are we ever going to be trying to accomplish the purposes of God operating on something less than what we need. He's always going to provide for us today what he wants us to accomplish for him tomorrow. That may not be necessarily what we want, and it may not be even the things we think he wants. But he always has the provision for his vision all the time, in every circumstance, always. And so these disciples that are following around Jesus, these 12 disciples along with other people, they're all part of this entourage of Jesus that are following people, just chasing him from one place to another. And they followed him out of the city of Capernaum and over to the Sea of Galilee. And they're just wanting to be able to be around Jesus. He's a great mass of people. He's 5,000 men. Some historians would say it was almost 20,000 people that would have gone with Jesus to hear him speak in that kind of setting. And all of them were fed with a bunch of stuff left over. And so Jesus then takes these, these disciples who have just had this incredible experience and kind of moves them on to something else. And so I want us to read about that. I want us to read what, what happened next and what some of the challenges they experienced after seeing something miraculous occur. What might Jesus want them to get and to understand? And what are some of the challenges, just being human and trying to figure out how to work from seeing God do something miraculous in our lives, like we celebrated Easter, to figuring out what it looks like the week after? And how do we work that into, into our lives? And so if you will stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 14. We're going to read verses 22 through 23. So again, Jesus just fed these 5,000 men. It was a miraculous experience. They had all this food left over. 
enough for 12 basketfuls, each for, each for a disciple to be able to take with them into this next journey. So verse 22, this is what it says. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went into the hills himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. For a strong wind had risen, and they were, they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. That's an understatement, I would imagine. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. He said, take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves and was terrified, began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. The disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Jesus, you really are the Son of God. You're the one we look to for words of life. You're the one we look to for all the things that make up who we are. You're the one that holds us all together as individuals and certainly as a family you know, of missionary servants. And so for all of us, at all of our different places in our spiritual lives, will you allow this, the Scriptures to come alive to us? Will you allow us to love the Scriptures, to love you as the author of the Scriptures, more importantly, and to obey you through our submission to your authority today? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that can be challenging for us as, as we kind of process through this text is we see that, okay, that sometimes, and in many circumstances, that Jesus-led journeys still encounter storms. Because you begin to read this story and you're like, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus just send the disciples into the lake? And doesn't Jesus know all things? And wait a minute, how come if they're following Jesus that they run into a storm? That just doesn't seem to line up with what I want my Jesus to look like. But sometimes, and many times, that is actually because we are following Jesus that we do engage storms. That even things that God leads us into will experience opposition. I would actually take it a step further and say, every time that you decide to do the things that Jesus says for you to do, you are going to, we are going to encounter opposition. We can call them storms. And we run into challenges like this on a regular basis. We see in, um, in John's account of the same story, in the Gospel of John, he's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, and each of them have different accounts of the life of Jesus. And, and John also wrote about this same experience in his Gospel. And in, John, in, verse, in, in John's account, in verse 22, he, um, I'm sorry, in John's account, not John's account, that we begin to see, get a little bit of insight from a different perspective. And the perspective that John brings is that after Jesus feeds all these people, guess what begins to happen? They begin to clamor. These are people that are being controlled by the Roman government. They are under the full control of another people group. 
they all of a sudden now have a man who claims to be God who is now figuring out a way to feed them in a miraculous way. So they begin to want to do what? They want to make him king. We don't want Caesar to be king. We don't want that to be the case anymore. We want Jesus to be king. And so they begin to clamor and push and celebrate to try and make Jesus king. Now, is that the purpose of Jesus? Was Jesus, though he is king, was that his goal in coming in human form? Was there any point in time in the scriptures that we can study and see where Jesus said, I came so that you might make me king? He doesn't need us to make him king, by the way. We're to build up his kingdom, and every kingdom has to have a king, and Jesus certainly is the king. But he came and took flesh upon himself. He came to become like one of us and to guide us towards what it means to really ultimately experience the fullness of life. And so in this circumstance, in this time, it wasn't time for Jesus to be king. It was time for Jesus to be the Lamb of God that came and take away the sins of the world. And they're not going to crucify a king. So Jesus resisted that. There's some thought that maybe the reasons why, and as we see in verse 22 of this passage, that Jesus insists very quickly that the disciples go and get on the boat and go away, is that maybe they were starting to join in. They were starting to get an idea that, hey, like, this would be really great. I mean, Jesus can do lots of stuff. Think about all the things we just want to give to Jesus, and all of a sudden, he can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 men and all their families and have stuff left over. Like, what else? What if we were to give him some money? Like, that's a great investment strategy. You know, Wall Street would have nothing on this. What if we were to give him this? What if he were to oversee all of our people and all of our families? Think of all the wealth and all the things that would become ours. See, that was exactly the opposite of what Jesus was after. And so I think it's a real possibility that one of the reasons why he insisted very quickly that these disciples get on the boat and get away is that was not what he wanted them to be a part of. It showed a a clear misunderstanding of the mission of Jesus. At this point, Jesus doesn't seem to be frustrated. He understands what the people are looking for. He understands that they're under all of this control. They realize they're oppressed. He realizes they're looking for someone as a savior. He just knows the better form of the savior they need is not a human king, but of a risen savior, Jesus. And so he delays a little bit in what they're ultimately hoping to be able to experience. So they can experience exactly what it is the Father's will is. So Jesus leads the disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee, and this storm shows up. At 3 o'clock in the morning, this storm shows up. And one of the things that we need to kind of realize is that when these storms come, one of the goals of storms are to attempt to change how we see Jesus. They want to change it. They want to change our thoughts. They want to change the way we see Jesus because a correct view of Jesus changes everything. When we see Jesus correctly, there's a lot of power in that. When we see Jesus as the scriptures communicate him to be, then all of a sudden there's a lot of power and authority that comes through the life of Jesus. But storms want to change the way we see Jesus. Storms want to alter the character of Jesus. Storms want to cause us to think inaccurately about who Jesus, about who Jesus is. So Jesus was, you know, in the midst of them during the storm. He was walking on the water. He saw they were in trouble from a ways off and went and engaged the storm with them. And as he approaches them, some people say he was kind of passed by them. Um, 
they see this go they see what they think is a ghost when they see jesus they think that he's they think he's a ghost the the perspective of jesus has shifted and has changed because of the presence of the storm understandably they are afraid understandably they're concerned for their life understandably like they're nervous and they're you know that's that's not a problem that makes perfect sense but what happened is they they were experiencing the storm and they see jesus and what happens their response is to actually be fearful what should have produced hope for them actually produced what fear the storm had changed the way they saw circumstances. The storm had changed the way they saw themselves. The storm had changed. It had brought vulnerability and it had brought a lack of security. On the shore, they were secure. Jesus has just done all these amazing things. But out on the water, in the midst of the boat, in the midst of the storm, and the wind, and the waves, it changed how they saw Jesus. They were vulnerable. It actually made them kind of think through this a little bit. Part of the, the insight into this, into this text and the context here is, is it's, a, it's a normal Jewish superstition that if a ghost would appear to you at night, it would be bringing disaster with it. And so they see what they think is a ghost. It's Jesus. They think it's a ghost. And naturally, that produces a tremendous amount of fear. There's reasons to be afraid. I mean, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. There's no land in sight. There's bad wind, high waves, and all of a sudden a ghost shows up. Like, this is not Scooby-Doo. Like, this is bad. Like, this is not just all of a sudden, like, you pull the, 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 the sheet off, the, and it's a human being. Like, this is scary. This is a bad day. This is serious trouble. It makes sense for them to be afraid. These are all good reasons to be afraid, but even better opportunities to be able to display courage. makes perfect sense they would be afraid. And life is not intended to be without fear. But whenever fear begins to present itself, many times amidst the storms, it's not an opportunity to resist fear, it's an opportunity to become courageous. An incorrect view of Jesus will lead to being fearful in the midst of storms every time. Every time. But a correct view of Jesus in the midst of a storm Give us an opportunity to be able to be courageous. This wasn't in my mind as I read this text and look at this. This was not about wind and waves. It was about a perspective on seeing Jesus clearly. I mean, what are some storms in your life that have attempted to, or maybe even your real honest, like assessment, really honest, that some of these storms actually did change the way you see Jesus? What are some storms that have, that have come in life? And, and again, good reasons to be fearful. Like, it makes sense. Anyone that would hear your story would say, that makes perfect sense to be afraid. But in the midst of our fear and the insecurity and the vulnerability that this storm brings into our life, if we're not careful, we allow for it to change the way that we see Jesus. And he becomes a source of fear instead of the source of faith. Jesus speaks to them in the midst of their fear. They say it's a ghost. And Jesus speaks to them in verse 27. He says, don't be afraid. Take what? What does it say? Take courage. Yeah. 
And he says, I am here. You say, hey, take courage. I'm going to make the wind stop. You say, hey, take courage. I'm going to make the storm go away. Did you say, take courage? That's why I don't think it's about wind and waves. He says, I'm here. He kind of dive a little deeper into the language here. He actually says, I am. Which as you study the Old Testament, it's, just a, it's a consistent language when God is describing his omnipotence and his omniscience and all of who he is. He just simply says, I am. Jesus also makes this statement to Pharisees when they're trying to talk about their father Abraham and asking him if he's greater. Jesus, are you claiming to be greater than Abraham? He just simply says, before Abraham was, I am. All of these weren't issues about what people thought they were issues about. These were all issues about how you see Jesus and who Jesus is. In the midst of our storms, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our like unwillingness to surrender, our, you know, our stubbornness. See, in two words, Jesus clarifies his identity. They think, hey, they think storm, they think ghost, they think fear. And Jesus simply says to all of that, don't be afraid, take courage, I am. And he says that to your storm too. And he says that into your circumstance. Maybe some of you that have been walking with Jesus for a little while can remember how he has been I am in the midst of your storm. He is how he's proven himself to be every bit he's claimed to be. That's really valuable. That's so valuable to have that recall. Others of you, because of what you're hearing today, you're going to decide to allow for him to be I am in the middle of your storm. And in doing so, you know what that's going to do for you? It's going to allow you to start building that Rolodex of history that you can recall and you can remember, that you can look back on to build your faith going forward. So then when the next storm shows up, you're able to remember, I am. So this whole time the disciples are in the boat and this is going on. It means getting these are real people, real situations, like real experiences. This is really happening. It's a real wind, real waves. This is actually happening, actually going on, real-time circumstances. So Peter tells Jesus, okay, Jesus says, I am. And Peter says, hey, if that's really you, then I want you to tell me to get out of the boat and to walk to you on the water. <laughs> you know? And so Jesus says, come on. <laughs> and Peter gets out of the boat. It begins to walk on the water. How amazing is that? Like, how incredible is that? I mean, that one phrase, so Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. How amazing is that? Look at your neighbor and say, wow. Now say it backwards. Wow. That's an amazing deal. Like Jesus told him to come on, and guess what happened? Somewhere between Peter stepping, getting over the boat, I don't know how high this thing was, but I'm assuming it's high enough that my jeans won't let me get there. But he gets up over the boat and gets onto the water, and as he does, it is, it is, he is on it. And he begins to walk over it. 
We don't know how deep. We know it's somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. We know that is a deep place. We know it is big enough to have waves that are scary to people that were fishermen by trade. And as they're walking on this, as he's walking on this water, like he begins to know, like, I mean, I don't know, moon, I don't, Michael Jack, I, I don't know, like, what, I, that's what I would have done. I would have moonwalked my way to Jesus. I would have been, keep my eyes on him. That seems to be an important part of the story, okay? So I'm going to keep doing that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to moonwalk. I'm going to walk on my hands. Like, if there's a miracle that I can walk on water, it's probably going to allow me to have the miracle of walking on my hands. I couldn't do that without the miracle, okay? So it's probably going to allow me to do that. Like, can you imagine real people? This is a real human being, a real guy who has spent most of his life on the water, fishing, okay? And now he is walking on the water. Wow. That is a huge deal. It's a regular human being who is now walking on water. The very thing that at one point was causing him to be fearful, to wet his pants, to have thought that he was going to die, that changed the way that he saw Jesus, was now the very thing that he was walking on. Wow! That is amazing. They used to be afraid of the storm, the waves from inside the boat. Now Peter is out of the boat and walking on the source of his fear. Wow. Just got to get it. You got to understand that in the midst of these circumstances, in the midst of all this stuff, that Jesus is the certainty in the midst of a sea of uncertainty, in the midst of uncertain things and uncertain circumstances. And when you're, you're feeling vulnerable and you're feeling unsecu- insecure and you're feeling like you are in danger, and you might be. That Jesus is that which is certain. In the midst of the sea of all these uncertain things. See, in really great moments, there always seems to be a but, doesn't it? Like, there always seems to be something that kind of crawls in it. And that's what happens here. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. So it seems like he's in close proximity, that he had moonwalked pretty closely to Jesus. It doesn't seem like Jesus had to go great distance to be able to get to him. It kind of seems as if it happened quickly, immediately. I don't know if Jesus could like just like hoverboard his way there. I don't know how that works. So if he has to walk, he's on a, he's on a whole other level. But he gets there immediately. Peter was wise enough to ask for help quickly. Some of us try to like swim our way through it, our own effort. Think, hey, if I can just tread water long enough, maybe I'll get back up there again. But he's wise and he reaches out for help and says, Jesus, help me. Went to the right source, went right to Jesus. He called him by name. He's now convinced this is Jesus. So, recounting this a little bit, Peter's eyes on Jesus, he does what? Walks on the what? He does what? 
Peter did what? He walked on what? He walked on the water. You guys know the answer to this question, don't you? Please tell me you know the answer to this question. Peter walked on what? Yes, he did. That is right. He did. Took eyes off of Jesus. What happened to Peter? We got to wait. Before we're too quick to condemn Peter, and there's a lot of people that preach this message and they go after Peter and say, how old was you know, I was wrong with you and you know, all these kind of things. And why would you subject your wills and your, your whims and your wants unto Jesus and tell him to do this and make him do that for you and all these kind of things. I guess there's, you know. To me, like I think what Peter did is remarkable. I think Peter, though he sank, he learned a whole lot more about his limitations and about Jesus' ability to rescue him in wet clothes than any of the disciples got on, in dry clothes. One of my heroes uh, in learning Christian, in Christian history is a guy named William Carey. He was a British missionary in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He's a missionary to India. And this was he's one of the, the first to actually leave a country of origin and, and go somewhere else. And it wasn't easy to do just simply because of lack, they didn't have airplanes. They didn't have you know, the luxuries that we had to go to get to North Carolina on Tuesday and back to South Florida on Saturday. They just didn't have those options in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And you go somewhere, you go there for your life. And that's what he did for the people of India. One of his major famous quotes was, expect great things of God and attempt great things for God. There's a relationship between the two. And I think Peter understood that in some way. Peter's theology is still being formed. He's still trying to figure out who Jesus is and trying to get this whole thing together. And as we know, you know, as we talked about, you know, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And in between that, Peter makes some bad decisions and runs away and runs back to fishing. And Jesus pursues him and brings him back. Helps him realize how much he does love Jesus. Jesus commissions him in a real powerful way. Something Peter, I think, did get here is that you expect great things of God, and that's really good, but until I am in a position where I'm attempting great things for God, many times I don't give room for those expectations to be able to be realized. I may expect great things of God, but I just do stuff in my own strength and what I can accomplish in my own power, and I'm never trying to do anything that I can't accomplish. Then what great thing, what room is there for God to do a great thing? That's why many times God's will, like his leading into getting into a boat and going into a sea is going to experience some kind of storms because now all of a sudden there's an opportunity for great things from God because we're attempting great things for him. Interestingly enough, um, also the Gospel of Mark records this story too. And one of the things that Mark's account states is that the disciples didn't learn from the miracle of the bread and fish. And so when Jesus is like, hey, what, what's up with your faith? Like, how, why did you doubt me? In Mark's accounts, he adds a little bit of understanding there that the disciples hadn't learned from the five loaves and two fish. They had seen all of this. They distributed it 
They had gone into the 5,000 men to find the five loaves and the two fish, and they turned back and gave it to Jesus. And Jesus would have had them organized in the 50s and the 100s, and he began to distribute it. And they just carried it out, and they just kept carrying it, kept carrying it, and kept carrying it. They had 12 basketfuls left over. Those basketfuls were probably on the boat with them, kind of floating up, you know, as the water gets in the boat. Like, it's, it's right there. It's probably bumping up against their leg. They're probably having to step over the basketfuls in order to bail water out. They're probably having to tip the bread out to be able to scoop up water in their baskets and get it out of the boat. Like the baskets were with them. And Mark's account says they didn't learn from the experience. Whose fault is that? Was that Jesus' fault? Or is there probably, inside of all of us, a hesitancy to do the things that we hear? That it's possible for us to see something, to touch something, to experience something, and still for it not to change the way that we live our lives, especially when storms arise. It may have been, that, you know, next time there's a food crisis, they reflect back to that, but it wasn't about food. It was about how we saw Jesus as the one who can do the impossible. The miracle rarely ever is about people got hungry again. It wasn't as if they never got hungry again. We can hear, see, and even taste God's goodness and still not learn enough for it to change our actions. How urgent are you to apply what Jesus says to you? So what he's teaching you today is going to impact the way you handle tomorrow. If we just read these accounts in the scriptures, we take them kind of compartmentalized. But these were real people and immediately went into something else. This was like, if, it, if it's a story on something you're watching on TV, it's not a new episode. It would be connected directly. It wouldn't be said it would be to be continued if, it, if your time ran out you know, on your Netflix. Like it would be that you're having to click the button for it to show up again or it's going to start on its own in 10 seconds. Right? That's what's happening here. It's the next thing. They were concurrent. As one end of the other bled bled into into the next. And so the things that God is teaching you today, right now, he is speaking to you on. It is not, it is not something he is just doing haphazardly. He is preparing you for what lies ahead tomorrow. See, he's not tied to time and space like we are. He's aware of it, and he wants to prepare you to handle it well. Again, not for you, but, because, but so that you can seek first the kingdom of God. Because that's what you exist for as a follower of Jesus. See, as with most spiritual circumstances. When we obey God, we get to see and understand him more completely. Like we do, it's behind the, the door. Like it's on the other side of the, it seems dark and uncertain, but as we obediently step into whatever it is that he's speaking to you about and you do it, then there's an understanding on the other side as to why he was leading you there in the first place. And then your understanding of him increases. And then 
God's provision, you know, as he provides in the midst of these stormy times, it gives us another reason to be able to worship him. One of the things that I want to challenge you about as, our, as, as, a, as a family is that it's possible you've ceased in some way to obey the things that God is leading you to do if you're having a hard time finding a reason to sing about him, to worship him, to declare his greatness. If you're having a hard time figuring out a way to, to live for him in the midst of your day, there's probably something in the course of that where you've stopped obeying. It may be because of a storm. And again, maybe valid reasons to be fearful, valid reasons to be upset, valid reasons to be challenged. But it's an opportunity to be courageous because I am is with you. And as you take that step of obedience, then all of a sudden there's additional reason because you're going to see how he's going to allow you to be able to work through that because the very thing that is over your head is still under his feet. He walks, he exists on top of the very thing that weighs you down. The very thing that causes you fear is not something that's even a thought of his. It was something he created. He created the wind. He created the waves. Psalm written by this guy Ethan in Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, says it this way. It says, O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? You are entirely faithful. You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. The disciples' response to watching Jesus tell the wind to stop, and it stopped. And guess what? That also brings the waves into submission, too. Then he says, their response is, you are, you really are the Son of God. They knew he was the Son of God, but now they were convinced. They had a knowledge of him. They had experiences of him. But their, their journey went deeper because they saw him as no greater than this storm. They saw him provide in this circumstance. Again, the things that are over your head today are the things that are still underneath his feet. They are underneath his feet. The things that overwhelm us are not overwhelming to him. Now, as a good father, he understands. A good father, he relates. As a good father, he spends time and considers. But at no point in time is he overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm us. Look, I don't know what you're facing today, but I want you to know I do know Jesus. I don't know the storm that you're engaging in, or maybe the, it feels like there, there's been a convergence of storms into your life. I don't know what those are. With a complete confidence, with complete confidence, I want you to know, I, I do know Jesus. And I do know that he is aware and I do know that he wants you to cast your cares upon him. And I do know that he has promised to take that which is heavy in exchange for something that's light. And I do know that we're able to accomplish all things through Christ who gives us strength. 
And I do know that there's nothing in this world, nothing you have done, nothing that has been done to you, can ever separate you from the love of God. My heart to yours, don't, do not dare allow for this storm to change the way you see Jesus. Do not allow the storm to cause you to take your eyes off of Jesus. Because the key for your ability to navigate through all of these things is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. That is how we're going to be able to run this race well. It's how we're going to take off the sin that's easily entangles. It's how we're going to be able to set aside the things that weigh us down. It's by keeping our eyes on Jesus. So, simple question. Where are your eyes today? You have a choice. You can look for Jesus in the midst of the storm, or you can choose to fixate on the storm itself. My encouragement to you, Peter's encouragement to you, William Carey's encouragement to you, all people screaming today as a cloud of witnesses, observing our behavior today, would say, keep your eyes on Jesus. So as the band comes, and they're going to provide an environment for us to correct our view, to correct our sight line, I want, I want to give you some time to do just that. In a second, there's going to be up here in front of, of me, there's going to be some bread, which is symbolic of his body, which has been broken for us. There's going to be some juice, which is going to be symbolic of his blood, which has been poured out you know, for us. This is the way that we remember. This is the way that Jesus has said for us to remember him until he returns. This is the way that he says for us to correct our vision, to correct our sight lines. I think it's fair to say what God is saying to you today is there are valid reasons for you to be afraid. There are valid reasons for you to be concerned. There are valid reasons for you to be disappointed. But these are all better reasons to be courageous opportunities for people to be able to see the life of Jesus Christ in and through you. So as the band plays, I want to welcome you and invite you to partake. As a follower of Jesus, this reminds us of where our hope stands. We're not looking for life in an empty tomb. You know, we are looking, he's not there. We're not going to dead places looking for life. Jesus is alive. And today, we just need to center ourselves on that truth. And it's a great way to do just that. So I invite you to receive the elements in remembrance of him as we correct our vision and place it back where it belongs.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.